Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change. A time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform. A time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's Conversational Corner, covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. You can find this and other episodes of Avi's Conversational Corner at Google Podcasts and on Amazon Music. This episode's topic, The Populist Alternative. Few social movements shook the American social and political landscape of the Gilded Age more than the populist or the people's movement of the 1890s. A wave of discontent from farmers and others seemed to challenge the pro-industrial and financial consensus of gold standards, high tariffs, and lax regulations of utilities like railroads, a wave that led to the epochal presidential campaign of Democrat William Jennings Bryan, who campaigned on the idea. But who were the populists? Traditionalists opposed to capitalism, or simply people seeking to reform it to work for them? Were they reactionaries against progress, or people who just wanted a different kind of modernity? And what legacy did they leave for the United States? With me to discuss these questions and more is Professor Charles Postel of San Francisco State University. Charles, welcome. Thank you. Good intro. Good introduction. So, I guess... Let's start with uh, uh, an internal, because people debate what populism means, and especially with the uh, wave of uh, po uh, populist movements and parties, uh, both in the United States and abroad. Uh, but let's try and keep it restricted to the American context of the 19th century. How did the populist movement, as we understand it with a capital P, differ from similar uh, outbursts uh, say, for instance, uh, the Jackson Jacksonianism and the, Jack uh, the Jacksonian age rebelling against, say, the big banks and finance? I think the, uh, what distinguishes the, the populist movement or the People's Party is the first formation of a sizable, uh, potent uh, farmer labor party that had a real chance of power and actually took power in a number of states. And from the, in this sense, it's, it's very different than the Jacksonian phenomenon where, yes, the Jacksonians, uh, Jackson himself railed against the banks um, and he had certain labor rhetoric. Uh, but the Jacksonian coalition was a coalition of slave owners like Jackson, Jackson himself, businessmen, uh, merchants. Uh, it was far from a farmer labor coalition or, or movement uh, where where populism is is a class based in the sense of class interest based farmer labor movement uh, and uh, was unique in that way. Now there had been predecessors like the Greenback Labor Party and things of that nature, but with these predecessors were much smaller and much weaker 
than what you see with where the populist party is actually a serious third party challenge in the 1890s. Okay, that's a great introduction. Um, so the other side of the populist movement and one you uh, delve into quite a bit in your uh, quite excellent book, The Populist Vision, is that the populist uh, movement was more than just a political movement. It was a a wave of social organization, social betterment, uh, an effort of people to towards self-help and to organize. Um, I was curious, though, uh, you mentioned, I think, somewhat in passing that there had been a previous movement uh, before the, the uh, People's Party came along. Uh, it was known as the Grange. And I thought I would like to know, well, was that kind of a proto-populist movement or were there significant uh, differences? Well, the Grange is actually the subject of my of my next book, which is or uh, important part of my next book, which is which is sort of a prequel to the populist vision. What were the social movements that led up to populism? That's my second book, Equality: An American Dilemma, and that's about the post Civil War social movements. And the biggest and most important of these post Civil War social movements was the Grange. And the context for this to understand this is that is that the African-American struggle for freedom and the destruction of slavery uh, in the Union victory in the Civil War uh, opened up a torrent of struggles for equality. It wasn't just black people who demanded equality in this new in this new America, but women were demanding their equality in this new America. Labor, labor said it's our hour to demand equality in, in this new society. Uh, and so forth. But the most important uh, interest group that rallied around the banner of equality was farmers. We tend to forget the fact that America was an agricultural society uh, before the Civil War, after the Civil War, in the North and the South. Uh, yes, industry is growing in the North, but most people are still in rural places and farming is still booming for the next 50 years after the Civil War. So the way to think about this is that right after the Civil War, at the end of the Civil War, uh, a group of bureaucrats in Washington uh, who had interest in farming, uh, they worked for the Interior Department, they worked for the, uh, they worked for the Post Office and other federal bureaucracies. They set up this thing called the Farmer's Grange. And the idea of the Farmer's Grange was to be a national movement to demand the farmer's place uh, in the national economy. And in large, it, it was largely a, a, a sort of fraternal order, except unlike most fraternal orders of that epoch, it was, it was strongly in favor of women's participation and women's equality within its movement. It's demanding equality of farmers in the national economy in relationship to the, the railway companies and monopolies. Uh, and another striking and very important feature of the Grange is they demanded equality between the states. Uh, and uh, they demanded national reconstruction on the basis of reconciliation between the white farmers of the North and the white planters of the South, as they put it. And in that sense, it was a major force for uh, the defeat of of radical reconstruction and the defeat of black rights. Uh, this was a 
This is an important predecessor of what the what of the of the later social movements of the late 19th century, including the ones that gave rise to populism. Uh, it was actually a coalition uh, across the Mason-Dixon line in favor of the destruction of radical reconstruction in the name of the equality of farmers. Uh, and but also the Grange goes on and, and is an important instrument in the in plays an important role in the formation of the Greenback Labor Party in the late 1870s. Um, what, but by this time, the Grange is going out of business. It declines dramatically. It had been a huge power uh, in the early 1870s at the time of Reconstruction. Uh, the majority of farmers in play, white farmers in Mississippi, the majority of farmers in Nebraska were members of the Grange. And then it goes into uh, sharp decline in the late 1870s. Uh, but it set a precedent. Uh, it certainly did. And uh, as you as you note, uh, the precedent was uh, certainly mixed, uh, fighting for the rights of some and fighting against the rights of others. Um, I thought I might uh, add into something which uh, a, uh, another guy uh, named Postel um, told me about how the Grange uh, was interested in regulating or at least trying to fight for a more equal deal with the railroads because one of the uh, enduring images, as I mentioned in my introduction, of the populists is basically almost like Luddites, uh, reactionaries who were fighting progress and who weren't interested in modernity, who didn't want more efficient markets and so on and so forth. But both the Grange and, as you note in your, in your book on the populist vision, they were actually quite enthusiastic. They, as you say, they didn't even hate the railroads per se. They just wanted... Uh, a, a better deal. If I may ask, first and foremost, where did this image of the populace as just a bunch of uh, loser rabble rousers come from? Well, the, the, the image of losers rabble rousers was contemporaneous. I mean, people at the time who hated the populace said, oh, they're just a bunch of hayseeds that don't know anything. They're backward. They're, they don't get modernity. They don't get this is a progressive age. That was the accusation hurled at them at the time. Uh, there was, a, of course, a very famous lecture given by Frederick Jackson Turner, the, the historian, about the significance of the frontier in American history. And there he basically says, you know, uh, he's he is the, you know, he is the father of progressive his, historians. And he basically says, you know, the, and he gives this lecture in 1893. And he says, you know, the populists are backward-looking hayseeds, essentially, who don't understand modernity. Uh, now, he likes them. He says, you know, he, from, from his perspective, they come from the frontier and are democratic people, but they're backward people. Okay, so it exists at the time, uh, but it clearly is not entirely accurate. Uh, and one of the things I'd like to ask you, uh, you go into great detail about how um, the, uh, the the populace, the people involved in the various associations that made up the people's movement, uh, they disagreed on a number of things. Uh, some uh, they they argued about at least uh, women's suffrage, even though the majority was in favor. Um, there were other things they were uh, not so sure about, but they seem to have been very very big and enthusiastic about the idea 
uh, of education, education of farmers, both men and women, uh, of specialization and so on and so forth. Um, do we have any numbers to the extent that we possibly can on how successful uh, these efforts were? And I don't have numbers on this, but, but we know that, for example, there were several hundred thousand uh, women enrolled in the Farmers Alliance, which was the most important, uh, the largest of the populist organizations that formed the populist coalition. And it had several hundred thousand women. And mo most of their function in the, in the Farmers Alliance was educational. They uh, wrote lectures, they, they provided instruction, they attended classes. Uh, and it was the big appeal uh, for them was that uh, it, was a, it was a way that they could not only become educated, but a place to speak uh, and be and have an educated voice in the sense that both the churches and political parties and virtually everything else excluded women from speaking uh, where they could be lecturers and educators in the populist coalition. And I think that's an important thing to think about this sort of um, women's equality issue connected with education and and besides using the organizations themselves as educators like the Farmers Alliance as an instrument of education uh, they also campaigned very vigorously for the expansion of public uh, higher education especially to make sure that women could get into these schools when so many of these land-grant universities across the West uh, and elsewhere uh, were expanded and, and, and developed under populist pressure for, as a place for women to get education. Okay, great answer. Um, I thought I might dig a bit deeper because as you note, the populist uh, movement at the time, like many populist movements in history, was relatively uh, more socially ecumenical. It allowed women, it allowed a great diversity of religious thinking, not just Christians, but people who weren't uh, necessarily religious. Um, but you do note in your book also that there were some limits to that ecumenism. For instance, um, while they were sometimes somewhat more favorable to black Americans, there was nevertheless a very hard color line. Um, and also, uh, you note that they weren't so sure about immigrants. I recently interviewed uh, Professor uh, Kamphefner about uh, German Americans who were very, uh, also there were a lot of uh, German American farmers in the Midwest. And I was curious, um, did they make any serious uh, overtures to try and bring either, uh, at least in the beginning, black Americans and uh, non-English speaking, because rural German spoke German more than anything, uh, German Americans on board, or was it mostly you're either on board with the uh, white old stock uh, approach uh, or you're out? Okay, this is a complicated question. And one, one thing to think about, one thing that's important to remember is that in many states, including places like Wisconsin, uh, uh, it's also a labor movement. And the labor movement was largely driven by the Knights of Labor. And the Knights of Labor is not a typical trade union. The Knights of Labor uh, was an, an industrial organization, as they sometimes called it, which organized all the workers in a given industry. So uh, in 
coal mining, for example, the majority of the people in coal mining uh, are Irish and other immigrants, mainly Catholic. And uh, same with railroading. When you get beyond the most skilled workers, the many of the unskilled labor were were uh, Catholic workers from Ireland and elsewhere. And the same is true with with African Americans. That in many of these industries, uh, the Knights of Labor is organizing black workers. And by the time of the Populist Coalition, uh, the Knights of Labor is the organization of the black poor in the South. So this is a, an important uh, sort of different way to think about how these things were working is that the Knights of Labor was really instrumental in the formation of, of, of the Populist Coalition and organized broadly across uh, immigrant and uh, racial lines. Now, now when they move into the when the Knights of Labor moves into the People's Party, they acquiesce to the uh, uh, demands of the Farmers Alliance, which had an a, a exclusion clause against black workers, against black farmers, and the Knights of Labor acquiesced to this, and it's part of the disintegration of the black base of the Knights of Labor by time of the Populist Coalition. But it is an important place to think about possibilities of what could have happened. In terms of broader, more broadly on the question of immigrants, uh, Richard Hofstetter, of course, famously wrote that, you know, that populism was the source of the seedbed of American anti-Semitism and xenophobia. And that's where it comes from, essentially, is the populist coalition. And this is just profoundly mistaken. The, the f- farmers of the populist coalition tended to be quite broad-minded about who could join. Um, and for example, Jewish people in Kansas way preferred the populists to the Republicans who ruled Kansas, who they viewed as, as anti-Semites. Uh, and they didn't view the populists that way. So. Uh, you know, in, in, in California, the populace elected Adolf Sutro, uh, a, a Jewish immigrant from Europe, uh, as the mayor of San Francisco in 1894. So uh, this idea of the populace is somehow insulated, I think is wrong. I think that it's partly just the demographics in a place like Kansas, in a place like Nebraska, the majority of farmers are white Protestants. Uh, and that's true. But uh, it's sort of striking how uh, open-minded they were, uh, how tolerant they were, in the, as many historians have pointed out, towards people on, of other religions and other languages. Uh, so that's a great answer. Um, so you have this broad-based, increasingly broad-based uh, social and political movement. And as you note, uh, by around 1890, they start to form and think, okay, we need to get people in office uh, at the state level, at the federal level, and so forth. Uh, and in some cases, as you note, for instance, in California, uh, they didn't have enough voters. So they, I guess they, they merged with uh, one of the local parties to try and get what they wanted. So what, was, what were the things uh, that self-identified populists wanted out of state governments uh, or out of Congress? 
Yeah, just just to clarify one one thing you pointed out, um, uh, the populists were the people involved in the populist movement were always political in the sense that they recognized the need for legislation to protect farmers' interests or labor interests, it, whether it was the eight-hour day demands of workers or it was farmers' demands uh, for for uh, railway re regulation or railway. Uh, uh, rate regulation, things of this nature, that since the time of the Grangers was part of these movements. Where they sort of broke was whether these things could be realized through either the Democratic or Republican Party, or they needed to set up a separate farmer labor movement to realize their goals. And that's where there's, that's sort of where it changes. Uh, and that rupture takes place in the early 1890s with the Farmers Alliance, late 1880s, early 1890s, the Farmers Alliance realizing that it had several demands on the uh, national parties that the national parties simply were not going to bend toward, bend to. And one of those, of course, was regulation of the railways was very important, but there was also the currency question was very important for them. Um, the, the movement to uh, to uh, establish or reinforce the gold standard uh, was was a devastating created a devastating deflation uh, that affected farmers everywhere, and they saw that the only way to deal with that was through national legislation to expand expand the currency and greenbacks, silver, however they were going to do it. Uh, so there are currency issues, there's regulation issues that were really big. For their national political agenda but they also had local political agendas whether it was for expanding public education whether it was for uh, 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 various types of, of of political reforms to expand farmers power in the local legislatures they were always involved in it, it they were involved in politics from the top to the bottom just one more piece of about the politics it's important to understand is that farmers, uh, the, the populist movement relatively quickly learned that an independent political party uh, can, can, no matter how popular it is, has a great uh, barrier to becoming a majority party. And what, what I mean by that is, is that by the 18, 1894 elections, the populists were doing, running very strongly. In California, they got 25% of the vote. Uh, and interestingly, the Democrats borrowed much of the of the populist program in the California elections uh, concerning railway regulation and other things, the eight-hour day. Uh, and the Democrats and the populists split the reform vote, which meant that the pro-corporate, pro-railway Republicans completely dominated the state legislature in California and Sacramento. And the lesson from that was there is no way to win these elections without what was called fusion. In other words, without combining the Democratic and, and, and populist vote, they couldn't be, beat the Republicans. And similarly, in some of the Southern states, like North Carolina, the populists recognized without a political alliance or fusion with the Republicans who were mainly black people in North Carolina, without that type of fusion, they couldn't win. 
And when they did fuse in North Carolina, they did win. Speaking of fusion, uh, and as I mentioned in my introduction, um, the most well-known aspect uh, of the populist movement, uh, some might say it was its high watermark, was when uh, William Jennings Bryan of Nebraska uh, won the Democratic nomination and ran what many recognized, I'm sure you'll tell me if uh, that's a fair assessment, many recognized as a very populist campaign uh, for the presidency. Um, and But one thing I know is that your book kind of, I mean, it's like, it's like, well, we know he lost, so that's it. But ostensibly, this must have felt, at least to many populists, like the most exciting time uh, ever. This is a, a chance to finally seize the highest office in the land to push forward our uh, push forward our agenda. And on the other, that's number one. Number two, um, you notice you note all the strength of the populists with the. Uh, with the farmers, but aside from the Knights of Labor, who definitely were an important organization in this period, it's very clear that for whatever reason, uh, the heavily industrial uh, states of the Midwest and uh, and and New England and Northeast uh, weren't interested. They uh, they went to McKinley. So how is it that the populace didn't manage to break through to that uh, to there? Ah, to two good questions and and let's start with the first uh the first is that is that the populace were not particularly happy with the with the with the with the um brian campaign because among other things uh many populists had hoped that there would be a populist president not a democratic president like like brian and and uh so the, the populist movement actually splits uh, with Brian, with the with the nomination of Brian. Now, the populist national convention uh, not it supports the Brian candidacy, but many populists they called called you know the, the so-called middle of the road populists are furious, and and it actually splits the populist party uh, irreparably. And, and one of the reasons for this is the South, where, this, where the populists are quite strong. Supporting Bryan means supporting the Democrats. And if you're supporting the Democrats in the South, you're basically abandoning the, your party. You are, you are uh, surrendering to your worst enemies, your worst political enemies. So in places like Texas and Georgia and places like this, there's very little enthusiasm uh, for, for this suicide pact with Brian democracy. It's a little different in the West uh, where the populace had been fusing with Democrats to defeat the Republicans for years, um, but it's still a, a hard pill to swallow. And then when Brian is defeated, yes, there was a certain enthusiasm, all the way of enthusiasm that went to Brian. When he's defeated, there's a great sense of loss now that doesn't mean that they don't go back to him again and again, uh, many of these same voters, but there's a great sense of sense of loss. Now, in terms of why, uh, and by the way, the populist as an organized movement does not recover uh, the eighteen from the eighteen ninety six election defeat. Um, the other thing to think about in terms of of the failure to make inroads 
in the Northeast is the populace were never very successful in any state where, where the two parties were successfully competitive. Uh, for example, in Iowa, which had many of the same farm conditions as neighboring Nebraska, obviously, because they're same, same terrain. But in Iowa, the Republicans and Democrats both had strong organizations. And if you wanted to get something done, you, you either joined one faction or you either joined the Democrats or you joined the Republicans and fought in that way. And that's how the farmers did it in Iowa. In Nebraska, however, the Republicans were overwhelmingly powerful and that allowed the populace space to join with the Democrats and unseat the Republicans. Same thing in Kansas. So the party dynamic is probably the most important dynamic for where the populace were strong and where they were weak. Uh, and, and that in the Northeast, especially states like New York or, or Pennsylvania, where you have very competitive Democratic and Republican organization, it gave very, left very little room for Republican for populist politics. Uh, there are other issues in many of these places, for example, in, in industrial parts of Pennsylvania. Uh, uh, iron workers, for example, are interested in the tariffs that McKinley is going to offer, McKinley does offer, stand for. Uh, <clears throat> but I would stress that the Knights of Labor, its heartland is Pennsylvania uh, and just north of Philadelphia. That's where the Knights of Labor gained its first strength. So the type of politics here are possible in these places, uh, but it's mainly the political configuration that made it difficult. It's a great response and uh, nicely explains the issue. Uh, I was curious a bit uh, twofold about what you were saying about how 1896 basically felt like a, a body blow. Here they, they made their effort, they had a national campaign and they were crushed. Um, so there are two things that seem to happen. First of all, it, se it seems to me that the, the populist impulse, even if not the movement, didn't entirely die out because you had someone like uh, Robert La Follette in his uh, third party effort in 1924, and he gained a lot of the vote uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, like places, in places where populists would do well. So clearly the, the impulse was still there. Uh, and second, I thought it was very interesting that you said that when the progressive movement started really taking off in the 1900s, it sounded like uh, people who weren't involved in the po in populism before, uh, you know, uh, po powerful uh, elites were basically co-opting all the reform uh, efforts that they wanted to do on their own, uh, and basically almost it, it almost sounded like they were treating them as like wards to be helped rather than uh, fellow citizens uh, to assist. Is, does that uh, sound uh, accurate or, or am I going a little bit too far? Okay, so now we get to the progressive era. It gets very complicated. The first thing is you're right that the impulse didn't die. I'm, I'm saying that the, the election was a very sad election of 1896 and people were sad about it. And the populist party disintegrates with that election. It doesn't really hold, it's no longer a mass party after that of any consequence. But its members, um, the ideas, the, the politics, uh, 
Uh, they've gotten this political training in these Farmers Alliance schools, uh, in these in the Knights of Labor, and they go on to all kinds of things. I mean, the most important type of thing to think about is Eugene Victor Debs. He's the head of the ARU, which is the American Railway Union, uh, which is, which is uh, uh, a strongly populist labor organization. Victor Debs, people don't remember this, but he was the most popular populist in the country in 1896. And many people wanted him to run. Uh, and, and they would have supported him for president instead of Bryan. Uh, but he goes on and he becomes a socialist and he forms, you know, he becomes part of the socialist party. And a lot of people in Oklahoma and Kansas and Texas, Arkansas, follow Debs into the socialist movement. So then in, uh, by 1912, the highest percentage of socialist vote is in places like Oklahoma. And that's, that's how it's explained. We have former railway workers and others are from the populist coalition. Uh, but many of them also go into both the Bryan wing or the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, and they go into the progressive wing of the Republican Party. And we often forget about the progressive wing of the Republican Party, but it's important, as you mentioned with Robert La Follette, that's an important phenomenon. And I'm not sure if we should call it opportunism or what it is, uh, but yes, these progressive Republicans, like the progressive Democrats, are borrowing whole chunks of the populist platform, uh, whether it's currency reform, whether it's railway regulation, whether it's uh, 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 direct election of senators, whether it's, uh, you name it, these people are advocating it. And uh, that's as true in California as it is in Wisconsin. And the basic idea is you can no longer win an election without advocating these ideas. So by the 1912 election, uh, everyone is running on the platform of an income tax, whether it's the progressive Democrats, the progressive Republicans, uh, the, the income tax is, is essential. And that of course is a populist platform, part of the populist platform from 1892. So, so, I'm, so there are people would argue and did argue that, that for example, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, he's, a, he's a pronounced anti-radical who thinks that adopting these, these platform plank, planks will prevent more radical change. And Roosevelt voices that. And that's the sort of the paternalistic view that I think you're suggesting. But I don't think that that's La Follette. La Follette was a was a reformer in a, in the sort of the populist mold, uh, and he's fighting the good fight. Well, great summary. It, it honestly sounds like the the populist movement kind of won by losing, if you will. That they shook up and became popular enough that okay, they couldn't win elections on their own but they created enough of a voting base and enough of a demand that the major parties had to listen to them. It, it, I, I sometimes, I sometimes uh, discuss on Twitter when people suggest bring, bringing third parties, I said, in, in American history, the most successful third parties are not necessarily the ones who win outright and replace new parties, although that does happen, but the ones that shake up politics enough that the, bi that the big boys have to co-opt them. Uh, 
Would you think that that's a fair assessment or is there more to it? No, I think that's exactly right. I think that's completely right. I, I, I think somewhere in my populist book, I say something to the fact that they, they were stronger in death than they were in life. You know, that they, that, that the post-populist wave of these reforms really transform America and dominate the political scene for the next really half century uh, in terms of, of what happens. Now, now uh, we have talk of, oh, we're going to launch this or that third party that's going to be a centrist party. Today we have this, I think they're calling it the forward party. And I'm wondering, well, what, what, what how will this shake up anything? <laughs> and it, it has no shake up power. Uh, but the people, because it stands for nothing, but the People's Party stood for a lot of things. And a lot of things that make modern America were actually originally People's Party uh, proposals uh, and demands. And it became impossible to win elections without uh, running on those demands. And so you're right, that's, that's the impact of, of a powerful third party that died. <laughs> I think that's a, a great way to end off uh, in discussing uh, one of the most uh, fascinating and very interesting uh, movements. I uh, highly recommend uh, the, the populist vision. It, it, really, it really changed my understanding of how this movement saw itself, what it aimed to do, and how it succeeded in influencing America. And I've uh, very much enjoyed this talk with you. Uh, Professor Postel, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Great talking to you. Take care. Thank you.